So my son has helped me do this. So we'll see how this works. How am I doing? Okay. I'm a very, I got to turn it on. I never used I come from a loud family. In the size of this congregation, I can do this without a microphone. How am I doing? Does it look stupid? Yeah, it does look stupid, yeah. Okay, something like this. How about that? Is that better? Anyone come from a loud family? Okay, I talk so loud, you don't need a microphone, but uh, it's just for the aesthetics of it all. So. Now, what's that? Yeah, I'll need my voice later. Yeah, that's true. I'm going to sing at the nursing home, too. That's good. So um, one of the great passages I love to talk about for, for me personally and hopefully for you is 1 Corinthians 15, okay? And as some of you, I don't know if some of you know this or not, I teach uh, different colleges. I actually teach religion. So I'm going to throw a lot of information at you because that's just the world I live in, hopefully it'll be of benefit to you. And I'd like to compare a little bit about how we feel about what happens at death and the resurrection and maybe what other people feel about it. So, we'll take that. Um, has anyone been to Buddha's tomb? No? You guys need to get out more. Um, now, to be fair, Buddha was cremated, so um, some of his relics, if you will, are in different places. So you can see parts of Buddha in different parts of India, or in this case, Sri Lanka. Uh, I don't know if you can see that, um, but on the left there, that's a temple built to Buddha's tooth. Uh, Sri Lanka is a country that is in south south of India. There you go. Thank you. Oh, very nice. Wow. Good. All right, um, and um, and so uh, people go on pilgrimage to see Buddha's tooth. I've had some students from Sri Lanka. They have a festival once a year where they do that. But you can still find the pieces of the Buddha if you really look hard enough. Okay. Next, I let you do it. Has that? Oh, you want? Are we gonna? Okay. That's inside. Should I just go? I don't know if I have any power left. Okay. Um, I don't know if you can see that on the left there. That is. Ever heard of Confucius? Okay, the, the uh, Chinese uh, uh, philosopher and uh, religious founder of Confucianism. That's his grave. Guess who's in it? Probably Confucius, yes. Okay, should be, anyway. Um, you might not know this, fa this religion. I could have gone through every religion and done this, like, you know, 90-point power slide. But uh, the next person is the uh, Bahu'u'llah, who is the founder of the Baha'i faith. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Baha'i faith. Uh, some rock group named Seals and Crofts are into that. But they're, they're around the world. And uh, guess who's there in that cemetery there? That's uh, Bahu'u'llah, okay? Uh, the last one is Guru Nanak, who's the founder of the Sikh religion, so also in India, and he's buried there, yeah? Okay, I think we're getting, we're getting on a roll here. Okay, let's move on. Okay, uh, you'll definitely not go here, um, because if you do, they will kill you. <laughs> okay, that's true. Um, that is outside. You're not allowed to visit if you're not a Muslim. This is Muhammad's tomb, um, and he's buried in Medina. He's not buried in Mecca. Um, but he's buried in Medina, about 200 miles north in Saudi Arabia. And um, that picture in the middle there is actually a sealed off wall. Um, they don't, there's no like visitation there. But it's right underneath that third picture. You see like a green dome there. He's buried right underneath this humongous mosque they've built um, in actually rather recently. In fact, someone, I was reading some commentary that uh, 
the entire city of Mecca would have fit in that mosque, you know, in Muhammad's time. So it's 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 really huge. But if you go, if you're a Muslim, once in your life you go on pilgrimage to uh, Mecca, and then most people they don't have to. It's not obligatory, but many people will take that additional trip and go north to see the mosque where Muhammad is buried. Okay, next. I just want me to do it. Okay. Um, you know, Cindy might go here. Um, this is in Israel. It's called the Cave of the Patriarchs. It's actually jointly run by Jews and Muslims with separate entrances. Um, believe it or not, that's where they say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are buried with their wives. And Muslims believe that Adam and Eve are as well. So, um, anyway, but that's where they're buried. Um, now, I don't know if you can read that. I don't know if I can read that. Um, when Pentecost came, right, after the resurrection of Christ, uh, Peter, who was rather cowardly at first, right, denies Christ three times, but then the risen Christ gives him empowerment, and then on Pentecost he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He, he gives a sermon, and this is what he says. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man um, tests you by, uh, I can't read that far. Um, anyway, basically he says, the last part, he talks about how Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And he says, can you go to the next slide, Andreas? Okay. He can basically say that last line, and his tomb is with us to this day. Okay. Um, if you back up a little bit, basically, um, Jesus, um, there's all these prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. Some of them are in the Psalms. I'll just turn to this real quick. I'll just, so I can read it to you. Okay. And one of them is, I saw the Lord always in my presence. For he is at my hands, so my, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is, was glad and my tongue exulted over my flesh and also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, which is the Greek word for the grave or sometimes used as hell, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make full the gladness with your presence. And here's what Peter says. This cannot just be talking about David because David obviously died. Because he says, Brethren, may I confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And this was written 2,000 years ago. Next picture. Next picture. That's actually David's tomb. You can go to Israel and see David's tomb. And I can say to you today, 2,000 years after this was written, David is still there. Okay, but there's a tomb that you visit in Israel that, shall we say, is what? Empty. Right. This is the tomb, and there's various disputes about where this is. This is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, Jesus was buried there, but the tomb is empty. So, because he is risen. And I can go through lots more religions, and if I had more PowerPoints, I could and give you all sorts of other uh, uh, places. But it's really exciting to me that our religion, our faith, is not based on someone who's still in the ground. He conquered death. And sometimes this begs some questions. What will we look like when this is all over? So I like to talk about this, and I'm just going to, my wife warned me, Where's the, how am I doing so far? 
One minute, okay. I only got one minute left, wow. Okay, I'm used to speaking classes usually one to three, four, sometimes even four hours at a pop, so uh, yeah, that's probably why I don't speak here very often. Um, Sheol is the Hebrew word for the Greek word, which is Hades, which is the abode of the dead. And, and for those who ever really study this a little bit, there's really not much about the afterlife in the Old Testament, okay? Um, it seems like that was kind of revealed over time. Um, you do have a few scriptures, so I, I have one out here. This is from Job. And Job, as you know, went through this uh, struggle. And so in Job 19.26, it says, Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. So you have already kind of this hope that there's something about that's going to live after you. Um, you know, a lot of Christians, I think, also think this way. Um, that when I die, I'm going to you know, go home to heaven. I'm going to be some sort of nebulous uh, spirit floating around playing a guitar, in my case, harps for other people. I don't know. Um, there's a lot more to it than that. Let's go to the next slide. Okay. Daniel, in chapter 12, it's probably the clearest, and he says that many of those that sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. He's talking about the end time and final judgment. Um, so, uh, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And so you see already this idea that out of the grave will come the redeemed, and for that matter, the damned. Okay, and you already start to see this in the Old Testament. So how does this then move over into the New Testament? And so when we go to the next one, I'm probably just going to read here from, you, from my own uh, John chapter 2. Okay. And I apologize for the really small font. We probably would have had 97 slides if we had done it any bigger. And so if you want to follow along, it's in your Bible. I'm just going to more reference it and kind of make some comments as we go on some of these. Do you remember when Jesus in John chapter 2 was just cleansed the temple? And, uh, and they asked, by what authority do you do this? And Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days... I will raise it up. And if you see that picture to the right there, that is a model of the temple that would have stood in Jesus' day. Okay, that's, right now there's a Muslim mosque on top of that, uh, which is the Dome of the Rock. But that is what used to be on top. That was the temple. Okay. And it says, the Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his, what? Body. Okay. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he said, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus has spoken. So already, we have a whole kind of change between the Old Testament, which is the temple outdoors, to the New Testament, where the temple is a person, which is Jesus. He's an author of a better covenant. But just physically, he said, destroy this temple, and he was talking about what? His body. Okay, so let's just keep that in mind. Let's go to the next one. He shows up, I think that's Luke 24. Yeah, can you give me the next one? Yeah, Luke 24. So I'm just going to reference, I'm not even at the scripture we're going to talk about yet, I'm just kind of building it up. In Luke 24, okay, which is um, 36, okay, all right, um, it says, um, Luke 24, excuse me, chapter, okay, if you have it. Um, What verse is that first one? It's the 36? 36, okay. Okay, while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a 
spirit or a ghost, depending, obviously probably a malevolent type of spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Okay, and when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement. He said to them, have you anything in here to eat? And this proved positive that Jesus ate meat. Sorry. They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Okay, so this is an important concept. First of all, you see all these scriptures leading up the many, many messianic prophecies about Jesus. And then he gives the threefold division right here where the Jews eventually, if you look at a Jewish Bible today, it's broken up into three parts. The law, the Torah, the law of Moses, the Nevi'im, the prophets, and he says here the Psalms, which is the biggest book in the Ketuvim, which is the writings. And that is the modern way that the Old Testament in, in Judaism is broken up. Okay, And he says everything that happened to me has to be fulfilled that way. Okay, can we get the next one? Okay, remember Thomas, yes? Just one more point, then we'll get to the actual scripture, okay? Um, and he said, after eight days, the disciples again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, because um, Thomas had not been with them in the original uh, uh, apparition, Reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here in your side and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet have believed. And there's that famous picture for Caravaggio where you see Thomas putting his hands into the side of Jesus. But that is Jesus. So the next one, I think we're up at, okay, oh yes, okay, Acts 17. How many know that, G, that the Apostle Paul preached in Athens? Has anyone ever been to Athens? I was there when I was 10 years old. And it's interesting, even though I still remember it pretty, pretty much, so I was walking around there on the Acropolis, and now I can look back and say, wow, I have walked around where the Apostle Paul walked around where Plato and Socrates and all the philosophers walked around. That's kind of what they were doing. Okay, so I'm just going to read this to you. Now, Paul was waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he was observing the city of full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and the marketplace every day with those who were present. And also some of the Epicureans. Now, the Epicureans is the school of philosophy that followed a man named Epicurus. And the Stoic philosophers, there's a whole bunch of those people as well, were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus, and here it is, the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are proclaiming? For you're bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all aspects. 
For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. They had so many gods, they even had one for the unknown one. Okay, therefore what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to us people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children." Being then the children of God, we ought to not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear of this again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, and some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus and the Areopagite and a woman named Amaris and others with them. So why is this so important? What did the Greeks believe about the afterlife? Well, they basically believed in reincarnation. They believed that you had a soul, okay, a psyche, and you die, you forget everything, and you come back to this earth, if you will, um, ignorant. And a good teacher, Socrates was considered a midwife, who would draw out of you what is already inside of you. The world soul, the thing that you already saw in your previous lives, will come back out. So all knowledge to the Platonists was just recall. And the Greeks burned their dead. You know why? Because once the soul is done with the body, the body's like an empty pen. You throw it away. In this case, you burn it, right? Here, Paul goes and talks with these people on their level, and then he says there's the resurrection of the dead. They probably were snickering going, really? Because these arguments are as old as 2,000 years. If we believe in the resurrection of the body, which is a Christian tenet, in fact, I'm going to show you that it's the Christian tenet, how does God reconstruct a body that's been, you know, look at those people. Don't look at those people. They're kind of underground. Don't dig them up, okay? Just leave them there. But those people have been dead for about 100 years. They're right across from our parking lot. It's a grave situation, let me tell you. Okay? And uh, we were digging around there earlier. And I, last year, I hope they weren't digging too badly there when we were doing the mulching. But um, in there, those people have been dead for 100 Are they decomposing? And wait a minute. Are you trying to tell me that the body that died in a grave hundreds of years ago is somehow going to get resurrected? That's what it says. You're like, huh? What about people have been eaten by sharks or burned in a fire or, you know, or got cremated? Well, I'll let the scripture speak. Let's go on to the next one. Um, let's go right to it. This is a rather lengthy scripture. I will read it quickly. And um, it's one of my favorites because it deals with something I don't think we talk much about. And that is, what are we going to look like when this is all over? Okay, so can you see that, of course? I've, can anyone see that? I can actually see that, but it's pretty, pretty bad. Okay. Now, to be fair, my screen is actually smaller than your screen. Oh, I can read it from here. Well, there you go. It's right there. Okay. I have a lot of scripture up here. 
Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. So what's the gospel? Yeah, well, what is it? Which I, thank you, yes. No, I'm not really asking a question. It's rhetorical up here. I'm sorry. Um, we can, okay. But in your case, it's not. We can, we can go on. Which I preached to, by which you also received, and here it is, in which also you stand, by which you are saved. Okay, so if you believe you're saved, this is it. Okay. I, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I deliver to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So all those scriptures. Now, there was no New Testament when this was written. So we're talking about the Old Testament here, okay? Anyway, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. Cephas is another word for Peter, okay? And to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Asleep is just another metaphor for those who are dead. You know, it said it in Daniel, those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. Okay. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as unto one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's Paul. For I am the least of the apostles, and so forth. It goes on a little bit. Then verse 12 picks up. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith is also vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And get this, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have per uh, perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. I remember talking to some Jehovah's Witnesses some years ago, and actually not too long ago, about this very passage. Interesting, just as a side note, um, people say, why don't you think Jehovah's Witnesses are Christians? Well, this is the reason they're not. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses, for instance, believe that Jesus had to be a sacrifice, yes? And so they believe that his body could not come back because a sacrifice once given can't be taken back. So they believe his body dissolved into gases and God made a whole new body for him that looked like his old body but wasn't his old body. Okay? So they don't believe in the resurrection. They believe in recreation. And probably like a lot of people think, well, wait a minute, how's God put all this back together? I always think, well, you know what? Adam and Eve, uh, Adam anyway, was made out of the dust of the earth. I think God can get the molecular structure all together, you know? I don't know. And so I went to the Jehovah's Witness and I said, you know, you don't believe Christ has been raised. So your preaching is vain. You're going from house to house. And you're not Jehovah's Witnesses. You're false witnesses. That didn't go over well. Anyway, but, but that's what biblically they are. The second time around I said it nicer. They, they were not too upset. Okay. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. And here it is. The first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Now this is interesting. Who's the first fruit? Jesus. What did Jesus look like after his resurrection? He kind of looked like Jesus. You know why? Because he was Jesus. <laughs> he wasn't another Jesus. He was the same Jesus that died. And so I point out to my Jehovah's Witness friends, I said, I'll tell you, you're right about your sacrifice thing. You know what was left behind on the cross? His blood. 
That's what paid for your sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Yeah? I'm okay with the sacrifice part. Okay? So, he is the template. We're going to be the copies, uh, the kind of thing that happens. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, thank you, Adam, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. I want to get into the whole coming thing when that happens. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he established, abolished all rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he's accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, when the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all and in all. Now here's another little tidbit. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? So another group I deal with is, uh, deal with, I should say, hopefully lovingly, are the Mormons. They actually baptize for the dead. Uh, they have the largest genealogical system in the world. If you want to know who, who your ancestors were, uh, go to them. They have Nobody does it better than they do. Because in the Mormon temples, not the churches, but the temples, there are a lot fewer, about 150 of those, they will do a proxy baptism for somebody who has died. Now, it looks like people in Paul's day were doing something similar. He says, if the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? So he's just kind of dealing with this argument here. Why are we also in danger of the hour? I affirm, brethren, by the boasting which I have in Jesus Christ our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, and then he goes on about something else. But here's the thing. There was some group there that was baptizing people for the dead. Now, those who had come to Christ, they were baptized. They were part of the church, right? Probably the question was raising, well, what about the people who weren't part of the church? What about my relatives who were not around when this happened? Or people who have died 100 years ago, and they're still, they're still in the tomb. So probably they were doing what the Mormons are doing. They're, they're baptizing in proxy. But it gets really kind of cultish there with the with the uh, actually cultish, but with the Mormon temple. But Paul is not saying this is good or bad. He's just trying to get to the point. And he's not really commenting on if this is right or wrong. But he was basically saying, um, you've got to believe in the resurrection. And if there's really nothing after this life, he quotes from the Old Testament in a way. He says, let us eat and drink, and if we add a Shakespeare, and be merry. For tomorrow we die, right? If this is all there is, then it was really not worth it. Verse 35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? Does that ever, you ever ask yourself that question? And with what kind of body do they come? I hope I'm going to look 25 for eternity. I don't know. As you know, the Bible says that the hairs in your head are, are numbered, mine are becoming less to count. And um, I'm, having, I'm starting to look like my lawn, you know, kind of patchy and lost a few teeth and yeah. Ah, wow. Anyway, so I, I'm asking, what kind of, hey God, what am I going to look like when this is all over? You fool. So that answered that question right there. Of course, he's not saying it that way, but that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there's one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds, another flesh of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. 
There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star and glory. So also in the resurrection of the dead, it is sown a perishable body. Okay? It is raised a what? Imperishable one. Okay? It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, a spiritual body is not a spirit. It's a body with a spirit. Okay? If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it is with the, with, as it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, is Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. So Jesus is the one who gives you life. Okay? However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, Adam. He was from the dirt, earthy. The second man is from heaven. That's Jesus. As in the earthy, so also are those who are earthy, and as is the heavenly, so are also those who are heavenly. Just as we've borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now, I know this is pretty lengthy, but bear with me. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And this is where some of my people who disagree with this whole resurrection thing come. See, you can't go the way you are now. And I said, that's true. We will be changed, okay? The way we are now, we're not going to make it, okay? That's what the phrase flesh and blood means there. But he says, continue, okay? Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, and this is the thing, this is, I think, answers for me, hopefully for you. I tell you a mystery. I hate mysteries. I want the answer, okay? What is this all going to look like? Well, it's a mystery. We don't have the ending yet. We will not all sleep. Not going to sit in the ground and just rot, but we will all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, when at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable, I always like, I always think of a coat. It's like this perishable, this rotting thing, is going to put on immortality. Yeah? But this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on the immortal. Then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? We're all going to die one day, sooner or later. It's just a matter of time. I joke about this in my classes sometimes. I say, what is life but a dash between two dates? And the longer I talk, that dash gets shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. And one day it's going to be gone. Right? Okay? You know what the death rate in America is? One out of one. One out of one people die. I've talked to people from other countries. They have the same problem. Okay? Lots of countries, they have the same problem. Okay? And you're going to make it. I always like to say we start off as grapes and we end up as raisins. Wrinkled, hopefully sweet. <sighs> we start off bald, toothless, and diapers. And if we live long enough, we end up the same way. <laughs> All right? In between, we have a great few moments. I don't make life... <laughs> it's terrible, right? Look, I don't make life... People going through some sorrow times. I get that. But where, what is that sting? is when you lose somebody, right? And someday somebody's going to lose you, right? 
And Jesus, you know, and Paul says, if, if all we've hoped for is this life, we should be pitied. You're a fool. Yeah? Jesus, of the only one, I, find me a religion where this hasn't happened. Jesus is the only one who walks, walks out of the grave. Boom. Two-ton stone rolled away. Bye-bye. I'm out of here. And you know what? You follow me, same's going to happen to you. We'd be nuts if that weren't really true. Oh, this is a pi I love Jesus' teachings. I love really? He said he walked out of the tomb. Do you believe that? Or is that just a nice story? Paul says you're saved by that gospel. Okay? Now, I don't have all the details. You say, well, how does this all work? It's a mystery, first of all. And all I can say is that our rotting corpse, or if we're still alive when Christ comes back, will be changed. Yes? And somehow this dimension and the heavenly dimension will somehow be intertwined and we're going to be in a future state. Does that make sense? Who is the first template? Jesus. He still saw the marks on his hands and his feet, yes? But he could just show up. Hi. Whoa, how'd you get here? <laughs> right? Um, and he ate food. I don't know. Okay, some say, well, maybe it was changed when he was glorified in heaven. There's lots of debates about this. I get this. But I want to get a concept across, and sometimes there's other religions that don't look at this. When God saves you, he saves all of you. I mean, not just all of you, but he saves all of you. In other words, um, first, you are saved by faith in Christ. Yes, you are justified. To as many as received him, he gave the power to become the children of God. Okay? Your soul was, your, your, your spirit, if you will, there's some debate, is the soul and the spirit the same thing? Is the spirit part of the soul? It goes on forever, let me tell you. But basically, you were dead in trespasses and sins. See, God doesn't make good people better. He makes dead people live. Okay, so you were dead in trespasses and sin. If you've been born again, you know what I'm talking about. I went to church all my life. I was a kid, you know, I went to church ever since I was as far as back. I love church. I, I was one of those kids who actually liked church, okay? I'm still in church. I'm always in church, okay, right? And, and I, I actually enjoyed it. But when God really got a hold of me, it was like, when I got saved, it was like, oh, oh. I started looking at like our hymnal. I started looking, oh, that's what that's all about. I was like, I've, I've seen this all my life. I was like, oh. Right? Truly true, I say, unless you were born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. It might be all around you, but you, oh, now, oh, there it is. <laughs> okay. Now comes the hard part, the sanctification. Now God wants to save your soul. You know all those habits you have? God loves you enough not to leave you the way you are. Okay, your parents probably say that to you too, right? Okay, kids. Because we want to make sure. So God wants to chisel and change and sanctify your life. Yes? Right, but ultimately, God also saves your body. Your body is not an afterthought. It's not just an empty pen waiting to be thrown away. God affirms the physical reality of you as well. Does that make sense? All of this is going to be redeemed. Again, it is a mystery. Okay, and how that's all going to happen, I don't know. But that it's going to happen, Jesus is the template. And that's kind of the message I want to leave with you. And then verse 58 kind of brings it in. Therefore, my beloved, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing this is not for naught. 
Your toil is not in vain. You're storing up things for a lot longer life that's to come. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Yes. So something good's going to happen. This is not worthless. You know, when I look at some of the early martyrs, I actually look at some of the modern martyrs. Actually, more people in the 20th century anyway so far, more, more Christians were killed in the 20th century than all other 19th centuries put together as martyrs. We're seeing people getting killed right now. You know, and when you know that Christ is in you and that you have the hope of glory ahead of you, you can forgive your enemies. You can do amazing things because you have a confidence that neither height nor depth nor principalities nor powers nor nothing can separate you from God. So it's a powerful thing and we need to be reminded of that. Jesus is the template. We're going to be like that and we're going to keep going. And that's a great thing. So that's the good news. That's the gospel. All right. How, was that? How bad was that? 18 minutes and 36 seconds? I don't know. <laughs> you don't have to apply. No, no. I just want to, I'm trying to keep it on time. So why don't we stand up? I'm going to get my worship team back up. And I'll pray. I guess that's what we do, right? So I pray. I'm on the worship team. It's kind of hard for me to get up here as well. So why don't we come on up? We'll come up.